The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Well, good morning, friends. It is my pleasure to uh, welcome to a chapel this morning Reverend Dr. Dan Borvin. He didn't want me to address his academic background, but I'm gonna address it. He has a BA from Moody. He has dual degrees from Westminster here and a PhD from Oxford. And he is currently the adjunct professor of systematic theology. But what he most wants to be known for is that he's the pastor of Grace URC in Torrance, the wife of Marcy, and he has two daughters and a boy on the way, right? I'm not the first one making this public, right? I'm not sharing anything out of school. <laughs> okay, news. <laughs> so a, a son on the way and a Cubs fan and a foodie. So welcome. Good morning. I didn't want Chuck to mention my academic credentials because that moody BA is a black mark on my reformed bona fides. I know better now. Well, thank you, Chuck, for this invitation. When I agreed to do this today, Chuck didn't tell me that I would be following Dr. Horton from two weeks ago and Dr. Godfrey last week, and then me. That's like the Beatles and the Stones and then John Denver up. Like. <laughs> so thanks for that, my good friend. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. The word of the Lord. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word to us this morning. Well, last week, of course, we marked the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. I don't know how you celebrated, but my congregation had a big party. We partied like Protestants. We invited some neighboring churches. We had uh, some good food. We sang a mighty fortress. We drank some German beer. And our minds were drawn to Martin Luther. Luther wrote in 1538 when he thought that he was about to die. He's suffering from kidney stones. The pain is unbearable. And he's preparing for his death. In the midst of this suffering, he says, Go, my dear soul, 
Go in God's name. How poor and wretched we human beings are. I have almost no strength left, and yet how Satan troubles and disturbs what little strength I have. Give me constancy and patience in your faithfulness, my Father, that I may overcome Satan. And then he turns to those in the room. He says, I have no doubt that Satan produces and sharpens these pains. But by God's grace, I'll have it better after this life. So nothing that I now suffer from the devil will hurt me. I will gladly go to pieces. Only let Satan not have his way in the church after my death. And finally then, he prays to God. He says, I am thy little creature, thou art the creator. I am thy clay, thou art the potter. If only the end will come for me, and thou might preserve the word longer. But I have reason to fear the opposite. I observe that the more we are enlightened, the more we suffer. Luther was wrong about his impending death. He did survive. He went on to live another eight years. And he remained faithful to God all the way to his final hour. Now, he's certainly a sinner, like all of us, but Luther exemplifies the proper approach to suffering as described by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, the verses that we just read. So in this passage, we see that Peter exhorts Christians to trust in God's sovereign plan and to remain vigilant while we await our blessed hope. In verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He's telling them to trust in God's sovereign plan. Now, this passage is basically an explanation of the previous verse. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In light of that, then, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves or be humble. It's a command to remain faithful to God even though we know we will be humiliated. And so in the context of persecution that Peter's hearers are suffering under, he's encouraging them to be humble. Don't retaliate against those persecuting you. And they know full well that their humble posture will result in a loss of status in their society. They'll be disrespected in the community. Their relationships will suffer. Their families will reject them. Many of them have already experienced these things. And humility was despised in Greco-Roman culture. It's a sign of weakness in a shame-based world. So if you can't defend yourself, you can't defend your honor, you're weak. Therefore, you're humble. It's not a choice. In Christianity is the exact opposite. There's no other option for the Christian. We must be humble. We're humble because we're not our own. We belong to Christ. We have nothing to be boastful about. And we don't know God's secret will, why he does what he does. But we humble ourselves under his mighty hand, Peter says. Mighty hand, of course, is a theme of, throughout Scripture, the mighty hand of God. Referencing God's sovereign power, we see it in Exodus 13. With a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. We see this throughout the Old Testament. It carries into the New Testament. Peter and John are released from prison in Acts 4. Verse 27, they say, For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan 
had predestined to take place. So the mighty hand of God had predestined the suffering of Christ. And he accomplished his perfect will through the sinful hands of evil men. So sometimes we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and we get deliverance out of Egypt. Other times we humble ourselves under that same mighty hand and we get foreordained suffering. It's the same hand of God. And only his children know this hand. Only the church experiences God's mighty hand of deliverance. Only the church feels God's hand of comfort even in the midst of calamity. Those outside the church never experience his deliverance and they never experience the comfort that comes in the midst of suffering. They only experience God's wrath. So we remain faithful to God. We humble ourselves so that at the proper time he might exalt us. This is the contrast. Humility leading to exaltation. A better rendering might be at the proper time he might lift you up. He might raise you up. Now, he doesn't exalt us in the same way that Christ is exalted, of course. But he does lift us up out of our humiliation. He raises us up out of our suffering. Of course, the greatest example of humiliation to exaltation is our Savior. Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. But we must remember that God will lift us up as well. But it's at the proper time. It's his timetable, not our own. And we might be uplifted at particular moments in our lives, but our true time of exaltation will come at the resurrection. When he lifts us up ultimately from the grave, our bodies are glorified and our suffering is over. But until then, verse 7, we cast all our anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. We humble ourselves. We throw ourselves at God's feet. We look for mercy. Casting all our cares on him. All the anxieties that come from being humiliated. Loss of family, friends, loss of our job. Getting canceled for being a Christian. We cast all that on him. And it takes humility to cast our cares upon him because it requires us recognizing that we can't do this ourselves. The Christian never says, I got this. I'll be all right. We know we're powerless without Christ. We hand over our anxieties to God because he cares for us. Now, one thing that's great about Peter, First and Second Peter, is we can wonder or speculate maybe what time in the life of Jesus is he referencing when he says something. So perhaps in this instance, he's recalling Christ's words on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 30. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? If he cares for the birds and the lilies and the grass, how much more does he care for us? And so we must trust in his sovereign plan. Then he says in verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. These are two sides of the same coin. Sober-minded, of course, refraining from drunkenness. It also includes being thoughtful, purposeful, undistracted by temporal matters. 
knowing what's important and what is not. Dr. Godfrey likes to say that we take our theology seriously, but not ourselves. This is part of being sober-minded. We know when we can joke around and have fun, and we know what we should be serious about. We know what is important and what is not. And we read this present life through the lens of the age to come. So we're sober-minded and watchful. Again, you wonder, is Peter thinking of Christ's words in the garden? Matthew 26, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then, of course, what happens? They fall asleep. And we must be watchful and sober-minded because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This lion imagery is appropriate in this context of shepherds and sheep we see in the first part of chapter 5. The lion is looking for Christians to devour, to gulp down, to swallow whole. Same word used in the Septuagint in Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17, to swallow up Jonah. And this is the goal of the adversary, to devour Christians. He can't get to the head of the church, and so he goes after the body, seeking to defame the name of Christ by tempting his people into sin. Ironically, maybe, though, the one who seeks to devour God's people will himself be devoured, along with sin and death. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four: death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because his future is secure and Christ's victory is guaranteed, we can resist the devil. Verse 9, firm in our faith. We can't we can't evade this sort of opposition. We can't run from it. We can't ignore it. We can't modify our behavior in order to escape it. We have to resist it. As James says in chapter 4, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He flees from us. We don't flee from him when we resist him firm in the faith. And our resistance is bolstered, we see in the second half of verse 9, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We're all the church militant. We all experience suffering in one form or another in this present evil age. And so we must take notice, we must stand firm against the devil so that we can be an encouragement to our brothers and sisters who are suffering. But our suffering has an end. Verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. A little while of suffering in contrast to eternal glory in Christ. Now, it might not feel like a little while. It might feel like a long while. But compared to the joy that is set before us, it is a little while. And notice that Peter calls him the God of all grace. He's not capricious like the pagan gods, even the God of Islam, acting according to their whims. He acts only in accord with his holy character. And a key aspect of that character is grace, the God of all grace. 
And notice that he calls us to his eternal glory in Christ. The glory of the age to come is not streets of gold or gates of pearl. The glory is Christ. Being with Christ in perfect relationship with him forever. This is our blessed hope. And he calls it his eternal glory in Christ. The eternal glory belongs to God. This is a direct insult to Rome, the city from which Peter writes. By the first century, Rome is called the eternal city. The poets Ovid, Tabulus, referring to Rome with that title, the glory of Rome will last forever. Peter says that eternal glory belongs to God. And long after the Roman Empire fell, God's eternal glory continues. So if the God of all grace has called us to his eternal glory in Christ, surely he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Now these verbs are all in the future tense, but the process has begun. We're in the process of restoration, confirmation, and so forth. And his hearers need this. They don't have these things at the moment. They're beaten down, persecuted. Many of them lost their homes, their possessions, their status, everything that they had known. Some of them were probably thinking they were better off before they'd become Christians. And they might be tempted to go back to their old lives like the Jews leaving Egypt in the Exodus. Numbers 11, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Peter's reminding them, it's only a little while. Continue firm in the faith. We too will be tempted to follow so many in the Christian world who have compromised as individuals, as congregations, even denominations. The question is, will we remain faithful to the teaching of Scripture as summarized in the Reformed Confessions, or will we fall to the spirit of the age? By God's grace, may we stand firm in the truth. May we take all the slings and arrows that this world can throw at us as we await our eternal glory in Christ. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for those eternal glories in Christ that you have gifted to us through the work of our great mediator, you have adopted us into your family, made us sons and daughters of God. Help us to endure as we suffer in this present evil age, only for a little while. Turn our focus from the things of this world to the things of heaven. Make us useful during our time here in our various vocations. May we bring honor and glory to you. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen. Copyright 2020, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.